Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about the coronavirus. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice, so don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steve Annette as a patient at his office. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Ron. Well, this week's topic is one that's interesting, and it's a current events topic that a lot of people have questions about because all they're hearing is what the news presents, and we know that that's not necessarily going to give them any accurate information. And the research people typically do on the normal sites doesn't have a lot of information either, and this is all about the coronavirus. Some people seem to say it's a nothing, and other people think that half of the world's population is going to die in the next year. Neither of those is correct, so we want to get the record set straight tonight, and I know you've done a lot of research specifically through the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, and the World Health Organization websites and information. So let's start out by going over what kind of virus this is and give something that people can compare it to that they'd understand, like what other kind of virus or condition that it would be similar to. All right. Now, before I do that, I just want to say that I'm going to go over a lot of information tonight. You might want to listen to this a couple times. And the fact that I'm towards the end is when I'm going to talk about what you can do to protect yourself and prevent this from being a problem. So that is really, I mean, that's like the key point of the whole thing. It's really important information. So stick around all the way to the end. Great. All right. Well, let's start with the fact that the current coronavirus goes by the name SARS-CoV. And it was named on February 11th by a branch of the World Health Organization called the Coronavirus Study Group of the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses. For people who don't know what that means, taxonomy is dealing with classification, putting things in a system or certain classes, especially having to do with living organisms. So the taxonomy group is the ones that classify things and they would classify what type of virus or what type of an infection coronavirus and its symptoms are. Right. And they do that with species of animals and also plants. Correct. Okay. Well, let's break down what the virus's name means. So SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. CoV stands for Coronavirus. And the two represents, I believe, uh, the second of the major SARS coronaviruses that's been identified as causing severe illness in people. Okay. 
Now, you may also have seen it being referred to as COVID-19. Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah, that's actually the name of the disease caused by the virus. Ah, okay. Yeah, sort of like, you know, the virus HIV and the disease it causes is AIDS. Right. Uh, COVID-19 is short for Coronavirus Disease 2019. Okay. And, you know, you also see it being referred to as a novel virus. And what that means is that it's a new coronavirus that has not been previously identified. It's actually a mutated virus. Okay. There's actually lots of coronaviruses that commonly circulate among people and cause mild illness, just like the common cold. So why is it called a coronavirus? Because if you look at at it under a microscope, it has a very distinct corona uh, on top of it. Like a halo? Yes. Okay. You know, the common theme among all coronaviruses is, is that they attack the respiratory system, including the lungs. And you can probably guess what virus it is similar to by its name. Uh, Again, it's called SARS-CoV-2, and it's a sister of the SARS-associated coronavirus called SARS-CoV that caused an outbreak of severe acute respiratory syndrome in 2002 and 2003. Mm. Now, there was also another major coronavirus similar to this that originated in Saudi Arabia in 2012 called MERS-CoV. And that stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus. Okay. Now, the exact origin for the original SARS coronavirus and the MERS coronavirus was from bats. But the current SARS-CoV-2, even though the exact location it originated from, which is the Hunan Seafood Wholesale Market in the city of Wuhan in the Hubei province of China, There's been no official confirmation as far as the exact animal source, even though it's likely to also be bats. You know, plus there's lots of conspiracy theories floating out there about all kinds of other origins, too. So I I wouldn't pay attention to that. If you do an analysis of the genetic tree of the virus, uh, which is, again, it's called Mm SARS-CoV-2, and, you know, you mainly look at the other two coronaviruses that I just mentioned, all indications are that it originated in bats, but whether the virus jumped directly from bats or whether there was an intermediary animal host is not yet known. I mean, you see the original SARS uh, coronavirus originated in bats, but spread to civets, which are mammals that are cat-like and similar to weasels and mongooses. And these civets spread the infection to people. While MERS coronavirus, which also had a bat origin, jumped to people from camels. Yeah. So, you know, again, they're still checking to see if there was an intermediary animal other than bats that originally spread this new coronavirus, even though the city of origin and, and the seafood market, if, you know, if, if indeed, I mean, that is really the location where it started. They actually had other dead and living animals being sold there, including wolf cubs, salamanders, snakes, peacocks, porcupines, and camel meat. There's all kinds of potential animal sources there, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you recall in our podcast on vaccinations and immunizations, which was episode number 36, I shared information about the true origin of many of the infectious diseases that we've fought over time. And I pointed out that the various plagues were due to rat lice. So that's another example of an animal origin and transmission-based infection. Right. Very good. That's a good example. Now, from the best information you can find, 
who would be the most susceptible to the virus and why? The people that are most susceptible are those in the vicinity of the origin of the virus, which again is Wuhan, China, as well as anyone close to people in other concentrated pockets throughout the world where either infected people from Wuhan have traveled to or people who have visited Wuhan and became exposed and infected or you know, people who have been infected by the virus from others that have spread it in other places like cruise ships. Uh, the group that is most susceptible to having complications, including death, are the elderly, especially those 80 years old and above. And obviously, this is due to them having weaker immune systems than others, you know, due to advanced age or various chronic diseases. And I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and give you stats uh, on this, uh, on illness and death rates uh, a little bit later on. Okay. All right. Well, that's typically... Typically, the people that are most susceptible to certain illnesses are the elderly and sometimes the very young, like the infants, because their immune system is still developing. Mm -hmm. Now, is there any information yet out about how it's transmitted? Yes. I mean, it's basically transmitted from person to person, and there's three parts to this. First of all, it occurs between people who are in close contact with one another, and that would be you know, within six feet. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, it becomes airborne via respiratory droplets that are produced when an infected person coughs or sneezes. Mm -hmm. And then three, these droplets then can travel and land in the mouths or noses of people who are nearby or even inhaled into their lungs. Now, it's also possible that a person can get SARS-CoV-2 by touching a surface or object that has the virus on it. And, you know, and then they touch their mouth or nose or possibly their eyes but this is not thought to be the main way the virus spreads. So okay. It's really airborne. Okay. Now, I did read an article this week entitled, How Long Can the Coronavirus Survive on Surfaces? And the answer is not yet known for sure, but scientists assume that it behaves the same as other major coronaviruses like the original SARS coronavirus and the MERS coronavirus. Uh, the World Health Organization has said previously that these viruses can last at least two days on surfaces. Wow. But a new study published last month in the Journal of Hospital Infections showed that coronaviruses like SARS and MERS can survive up to nine days on surfaces that haven't been disinfected, including metal, glass, or plastic. Wow. Yeah. That study also showed that the survival of coronaviruses can be decreased by higher temperatures between 86 and 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And the CDC has also said that there's little chance that the virus could be spread through things like packages and mail. But in China, they're not taking any chances. Uh, for example, banks have been ordered to disinfect all cash before it's put into public distribution. And cash transfers between provinces have been suspended. Wow. Yeah. What a mess. I know. Now, people are thought to be most contagious when they're most symptomatic or at their sickest. But some spread, you know, might be possible before people even show any symptoms at all. There have been reports of this uh, with this new coronavirus. Uh, but again, this is not thought to be the main way that the virus spreads. Uh, because of its highly contagious nature, many people that have had it have been quarantined, not only in China, but also on cruise ships and you know, other various locations throughout the world where people from China that have it have traveled to. And while this virus seems to have emerged from an animal source, 
it's now spreading from person to person. So there's really no reason to think that any animals or pets in the United States might be a source of infection with this new coronavirus. But nevertheless, the Centers for Disease Control recommends not handling pets or other animals while someone is sick with COVID-19. Uh, although there have not been any reports of pets or other animals becoming sick with COVID-19, several types of coronaviruses can cause illness in animals and spread between animals and people. So until we know more, the CDC recommends that anyone with COVID-19 avoids contact with animals and to wear a face mask, not only around other people, but also if you must be around animals or care for a pet. Okay. Now, if somebody does get infected with this virus, what kind of symptoms would they exhibit? Well, typical symptoms include those of, you know, a mild to severe respiratory illness, uh, which would include fever, cough, and difficulty breathing, also known as shortness of breath. Uh, the CDC believes at this time, symptoms of COVID-19 may appear in as few as two days or as long as 14 days after exposure. And they stress that if you've been in China within the past two weeks and develop symptoms to call your doctor. Okay. Now, in addition to the symptoms, are there any objective tests to determine if you really have the coronavirus? Yes, but at the time of this recording, that test is not available at any local lab like Quest or LabCorp. Uh, it's only available at the Centers for Disease Control. So in order to be tested, your doctor has to contact the local or state health department and then they will contact the CDC's Emergency Operations Center uh, that they're reporting a person under investigation to determine whether testing for COVID-19 at the CDC is indicated. So if it is, then the Emergency Operations Center will assist the local or state health department to collect, store, and ship the specimen appropriately to the CDC. And that would include, uh, you know, if it had to go after hours, times, or on weekends or holidays. Now, I'm assuming that, it, you know, it would be overnighted to them right away, but I'm not sure how long it takes to get the test results. Uh, I would think it's pretty quick uh, considering the seriousness of this situation. Right. A quick update. Since this episode was recorded, there has been a change regarding the tests. It used to be that they were only done at the CDC in Georgia, but now approved labs in various cities can do the test. It's not just the CDC. So that's a quick update since the recording of this episode. So if somebody thinks that there's a possibility that they've been infected, what should they do? Well, I mean, the, the CDC, again, the Centers for the Disease Control recommends contacting your healthcare provider immediately. And if you have become infected, according to the CDC, you should be isolated or quarantined either in the hospital or at home, depending on how sick you are. Uh, until you're better and no longer pose a risk of infecting others. Now, quarantine means separating a person or group of people who have been exposed to a contagious disease, but have not developed illness or symptoms from others who have not been exposed, you know, in order to prevent the possible spread of that disease. Quarantine is usually established for the incubation period of the communicable disease, which is the span of time during which people have developed illness after exposure. So in this case, a couple weeks. Yeah, it's, it's 14 days from the last date of exposure because 14 days is the longest incubation period seen for similar coronaviruses. Right. 
someone who has been released from COVID-19 quarantine is not considered a risk for spreading the virus to others because they have not developed illness during the incubation period. You know, the amount of time that someone is actively sick can vary. So deciding when to release someone from isolation is made on a case-by-case basis by consulting with doctors, infection prevention and control experts, and public health officials. And, you know, it involves looking at the specifics of each situation, including the severity of the disease, the signs and symptoms of the illness, and lab testing results for that patient. So current CDC guidelines for when it's okay to release someone from isolation is made on a case-by-case basis and includes meeting all of the following requirements. Uh, The patient is free from fever without the use of fever-reducing medications. The patient is no longer showing symptoms, including a cough. The patient has tested negative on at least two consecutive respiratory specimens collected at least 24 hours apart, and someone being released from isolation is not considered to pose a risk of infection to others. Okay. The CDC also recommends that people who have COVID-19 and are showing symptoms should wear a face mask to protect others from the risk of getting infected. I was waiting for that one because mm-hmm. I knew that would have to be in there somewhere. So if somebody does get COVID-19, what is the standard course of treatment and how effective is it? Well, according to the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, there is no specific antiviral treatment recommended for COVID-19. So people with, with it should receive supportive care to help relieve symptoms. And for severe cases, treatment should include care to support vital organ functions. Now, it's estimated that a workable vaccine is realistically about 18 months away from being approved and released. And this could be speeded up, especially since Chinese researchers discovered and shared the genetic sequence of the virus in January. And then researchers at the University of Texas at Austin and the National Institutes of Health used an electron microscope to identify the first 3D map of SARS-CoV-2 to better understand its molecular structure with uh, specific attention to what's called the virus spike protein. This protein is critical to, to the survival of the virus because it allows the virus to get inside human cells and begin making copies of itself. So the U.S. research team showed that there are actually similarities between the spike protein in the coronavirus responsible for the 2002-2003 SARS outbreak and the new coronavirus, again, SARS-CoV-2. But the new one appears to bind to human cells much more strongly than the first SARS virus did, and antibodies against the first SARS virus don't seem to react to the new virus in the same way. So, you know, having this data and the advanced technology to test what can improve the body's immune response against this virus will hopefully speed up the design and development of workable remedies. All right. So in other words, you're SOL if you get infected. No, not, not necessarily. When it comes to medicines, yes, but we're going to talk about other things later on. All right. Well, before we do that, what are the statistics on the infection rates and the illness and mortality rates of this new disease? Well, you know, I've got stats that just came out, but you have to understand that these can change. And by the time that people hear this, some of this data will be outdated. Right. 
So as far as the number of people infected and the number of deaths, that's obviously changing every day. So that's definitely going to be different when you hear this. But as of today, February 23rd, 2020, according to the World Health Organization, there have been 77,042 confirmed cases of people infected by the virus in China, with 64,084 of them, or 83%, occurring in the Hubei province and a total of 2,445 deaths in China, with 2,346 or 96% occurring in the Hubei province. Now, outside of China, there have been just 1,769 confirmed cases in 28 countries, and so far, 17 deaths with six of them occurring in the last 24 hours. The first case in the United States was confirmed on January 20th in Washington State, and it was a 35-year-old man who had returned home on January 15th after traveling to visit family in Wuhan, China. Mm. Since January 21st, there have been a total of 14 cases diagnosed in the United States, with 12 of them travel-related, and so far just two from person-to-person -person spread within the borders. Okay. There have also been an additional 21 cases of Americans who have been diagnosed outside the U.S. and have traveled back, and were still confirmed to be infected by the virus, with three of them coming from Wuhan, China, and 18 of them coming from the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Right. And obviously, all of them have been quarantined appropriately. Good. And so far, out of the total 35 U.S. cases, there have been no deaths. That's good. Now, one more thing I wanted to cover before discussing death rates is I wanted to go over the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, so an epidemic is a disease that takes hold of one community, such as a country or a region or a city. A pandemic is defined by the World Health Organization as the worldwide spread of a new disease. So as you can see by the stats that I just gave, so far, COVID-19 has been classified as an epidemic and not a pandemic, even though it has spread to 28 countries. The overwhelming majority of cases and deaths are focalized in the Hubei province of China. An example of a pandemic was the Spanish flu of 1918, which interestingly enough, had a similar death rate as the COVID-19, uh, the current infection, at about 2%. But it was very widespread, killing around 50 million people worldwide. Yeah, that's widespread. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as death rates are concerned, I can give you the stats on that. And these are likely to stay about the same as this disease progresses over time, unless a remedy or an effective vaccine is produced. All right. So overall, the number of people that die from this virus that are infected with it is around 2%. Okay. Uh, a landmark study published by researchers from the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention in the Chinese Journal of Epidemiology on February 17th looked at 72,314 confirmed, suspected, clinically diagnosed, and asymptomatic cases of COVID-19 illness across China as of February 11th. They found the overall death rate to be 2.3%. Okay. I mentioned earlier that the group of people most susceptible to dying from this infection are older adults mm -hmm. since they have weaker immune systems. Right. 
you know, which means it's harder for them to fight off a virus such as, you know, SARS-CoV-2 or the flu. And patients with heart disease were most likely to die from the virus, followed by those with diabetes, chronic respiratory disease, and hypertension. Now, if we look at specific age groups of people that have contracted the virus, the Chinese uh, Centers for Disease Control researchers found that people 80 and older had the highest fatality ratio at 14.8%. Hmm. Okay. Those aged between 70 and 79 had a likelihood of death at just 8%. And it dropped down to 3.6% for people in their 60s. Uh, the death rate was even lower at 1.5% for people in their 50s. And everyone else, which is everyone under 50, the death rate was less than 0.5% or half a percent, which is about one in 200 people. Wow. Fortunately, the Chinese researchers uh, found no deaths among children up to age nine, despite you know, at least two cases of newborn babies that were infected through their mothers. So okay. you know, even though you mentioned about you know, the immune systems not being developed, it, it doesn't seem to be uh, bothering or, or, or deadly to young children at all. All right. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. Now let's put this in perspective. You mentioned the flu virus. How do these statistics compare to statistics for a typical flu virus or flu season? Well, you know, comparing this to annual flu outbreaks is a little difficult because this virus has only been active since December of 2019. So we've only got a, you know, a couple months to report on this at this time instead of a full year mm -hmm. stat, like for flu outbreaks. Plus, it's hard to say at this point how many people worldwide are going to end up with this. Um, so far in the United States, we've done an excellent job of containing it. Right. Uh, in general, according to the Centers for Disease Control, the flu kills about 0.1% or one in a thousand who contract it versus 2.3% for the SARS-CoV-2. And, you know, there is a possibility that the, this SARS coronavirus is being underreported. Because in China, in sometime in January, one of the initial reports was there was only 40, 440 people that had it when in fact it was 10 times that amount. It was, it was like 4,400. So it's possible that throughout the world that only 10% of the people that have it may be being reported. So what that means, it may be more widespread, but with that in mind, then it's a lot less deadly because then it would be Instead of 2.3%, it would be 0.23% Okay, deadly. You see what I mean? Yep, I do. Now, you know, we can also compare it to the other major coronaviruses, SARS and MERS. Uh, the SARS coronavirus of 2002 to 2003 only infected 8,000 people and killed nearly 800 in Asia, putting its death rate at about 10%, which is much higher than the current SARS coronavirus but the total death toll was less since much fewer people were infected. Mm -hmm. The MERS death rate is much higher at 34%. Wow. Yeah. And just to give you another comparison, the ultra deadly Ebola virus is up around 50%. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'm glad that it's a lower percentage than those other conditions. Mm -hmm. So now what is it that people can do to lessen their chance of getting the coronavirus and be better able to fight it off if they're around somebody who has it? Well, I mean, this, there's a lot of information here, so th and this is ultra, ultra important, so listen up. 
There are a lot of things you can do, not only to lessen your chance of contracting it, but also to fight it off if you're unfortunate enough to be exposed to it. All right. I'm listening. All right. Well, as far as prevention is concerned, let's start with proper hand washing. Mm -hmm. Now, very few people wash their hands correctly and expensive soaps are unnecessary, including and especially antibacterial soaps. Because it's a virus. That and the fact is that, you know, the product that you choose to use is far less important than how you wash and when. Okay. According to an article from earlier this week entitled, Why You Don't Need to Splurge on a Pricey Hand Soap. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends using just soap and water. But you can fall back on an alcohol-based hand sanitizer if there's no running water nearby. Now, the purpose of washing your hands is not to kill bacteria, but rather to remove the harmful bacteria that we come across, especially during cold and flu season. Now, our hands have always, you know, they always have bacteria on them, including good bacteria, which research is finding that it's better not to kill these since we live in a balance or homeostasis with these. And just like what we learned in our antibiotics podcast, when you continue to use antibacterial products, the bacteria will evolve, you know, creating superbugs that eventually will be resistant to sanitizers, just like some antibiotics. Right. Now, there's four steps to washing your hands that the Centers for Disease Control recommends. First off, use clean running water, and the water temperature doesn't matter, according to a 2017 Rudker study. So just use what's most comfortable for you whether it's warm or cold. Second is to apply soap and lather your entire hand, front and back, as well as your fingertips. Third one is the biggest out point for most people. Uh, in fact, according to a 2018 study from the U United States Department of Agriculture, 97% of people failed to do this properly when washing their hands before a meal. Can you guess what that is? Using something like a paper towel instead of a shared towel. Nope. Actually, it's not spending the recommended amount of time to wash your hands, which is 20 seconds, according to the CDC. Hmm. So you can actually accomplish this by singing to yourself, happy birthday, two times through. Okay. <laughs> Ever since I learned this, I've been singing happy birthday every time I wash That's my hands. That's good to know. Yeah. The fourth one is rinse your hands and dry with a clean towel since the friction that you create by drying with a towel goes a long way towards physically removing any germs. Uh, you know, the CDC also recommends that you wash your hands at key moments in the day, including while preparing a meal, after you sneeze or cough, and after using the restroom. And another wise thing that you can do is to have a hand sanitizer handy when handling things in public, such as shopping carts and gas pumps. Uh, I mean, some grocery stores now have hand sanitizers as you enter, you know, around where the shopping carts are. Yep. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, if you have a trip planned to China, especially close to where the outbreak epicenter is, then you should consider rescheduling until it's totally contained. And likewise, anywhere else in the world where there are concentrated pockets of people infected with the virus, uh, you might want to avoid that too. Now, the CDC does not recommend that people who are well wear a face mask to protect themselves from respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, and that you should only wear a mask if a healthcare professional recommends it. 
Well, you know, I'm a healthcare professional, and I recommend that if you have to travel for long distances on an airplane, especially out of the country, not a bad idea to wear a protective face mask. And obviously, the use of face masks is crucial for health workers and other people who are taking care of someone that's actually infected with COVID-19 in close settings, which would be, you know, at home or in a healthcare facility. Right. Now, let's look at some nutritional recommendations since there are no drugs or vaccines that work against this current virus. The first thing I would recommend is to eliminate sugar and certain dairy products like milk and ice cream. And the reason for that is sugar, you know, is something that microorganisms like to feed on, and it also weakens your immune system, your immune system response. Uh, Milk and ice cream thicken the lymph and fluid in your body and mucus, so it makes it harder for your white blood cells to mobilize and fight infections. Next up would be to increase nutrients, and the most important of which by far is... Vitamin D. You got it. So for many, many reasons, and I, man, I, I, I can't wait to go through all this information. This is awesome. Your white blood cells have receptors for vitamin D, so vitamin D can actually control your immune system And, you know, what's interesting is that many viruses have the ability to block these receptors. And that keeps vitamin D from working well in the body, allowing viruses to replicate and thrive in the body. So when your vitamin D levels are down, you know, you're much more susceptible to getting sick when you're exposed to a virus or any other infectious microorganism for that matter. A good explanation why older adults are more susceptible to developing pneumonia is that, you know, when their blood levels of vitamin D are extremely low, they have a 2.6 times greater risk of developing pneumonia than those who have high blood levels of vitamin D. Wow. So that should, you know, we talked about how the flu is uh, such that most of the people that die from that are due to flu complications, and, and that's pretty much pneumonia. So anybody that has the flu, especially elderly people, really need to load up on vitamin D. Right. Now, one of the things that all coronaviruses do is stimulate inflammation in the respiratory system, especially the lungs. By activating a protein complex called nuclear factor kappa B, or NF-kappa-B for short. Uh, Pharmaceutical companies know this, and they're trying to patent drugs that inhibit NF-kappa-B. But there are actually over 700 natural substances that do this, with vitamin D leading the way, uh, along with uh, vitamin C and E, alpha-lipoic acid, N-acetylcysteine, resveratrol, the bioflavonoid quercetin, zinc, and garlic, to name a few. Mm. Uh, Vitamin D stimulates your white blood cells to attack viruses, especially neutrophils, which comprise about 60% of the white blood cells. And, you know, these are the first arriving white blood cells at the site of an infection in the body. I mean, this is tremendously important when it comes to SARS coronaviruses because according to Anthony Fair, a virologist at the University of Kansas, he, he states, and I'm quoting him, if the virus replicates very quickly, before your body has a chance to try and prevent it with an immune response, or if the immune response comes in too late, then it can't control the virus and starts going berserk. And this is what's known as a cytokine storm, which has been mentioned by a lot of coronavirus experts. 
So cytokines are inflammation-causing chemicals created by the immune system to fight infections. But the problem is that so many of these are pumped into the lungs during an acute virus like the flu or you know, a coronavirus infection that you end up with lung damage, not only from the infection and potential secondary infections, but also from the cytokines. So fortunately, this can be warded off by having enough vitamin D available in the body to prevent this exaggerated immune response from actually occurring. Wow. Yeah. And we've gone over ideal blood levels for vitamin D in previous podcasts, including episode number 59, covering vitamin D. But ideally, taking around eight to 10,000 international units a day is recommended, especially during the winter months when there's less sunlight, which also happens to be peak season for cold flu and other viruses, including coronaviruses. Yep. Uh, at the first hint of a cold or flu, it's not a bad idea to take upwards of 50,000 international units a day of D3 for a, you know, a day or two to supercharge your immune system. But definitely supplement also with vitamin K2 and some magnesium to prevent calcium buildup in the body. Okay. Okay, moving on. Vitamin C not only inhibits uh, NF-kappa B, just like vitamin D, but it's also excellent for boosting the immune system and increasing it during cold and flu season you know, is a wise thing to do with at least uh, one to 2,000 milligrams a day, if not higher, and preferably combined with bioflavonoids. Zinc also inhibits NF-kappa B, and it stimulates the thymus gland to produce T cells, which produce antibodies that fight off viruses like the coronavirus. Uh, zinc lozenges seem to work the best with zinc acetate leading the way, followed by zinc glutinate at a minimum of you know, 18 milligrams a day. Uh, but no, there's no need to take more than 40 milligrams, especially for long periods of time, since too much can cause unwanted side effects, including a deficiency of copper and other problems, including dizziness, headaches, drowsiness, increased sweating, loss of muscle coordination, alcohol intolerance, hallucinations, and anemia. And of course, colloidal silver is another smart thing to incorporate since it's been found to kill upwards of 650 different microorganisms, including viruses. I, I recommend silver water, which comes in a 32-ounce bottle, and every day I drink one capful or one ounce you know, as a preventative measure. But if you come down with a bug, then typically one ounce every four hours works quite well. According to Dr. Eric Berg, Prolonged fasting has also been found to help your body clean up microorganisms, including viruses from the body, and it can stimulate stem cell production, which can help you boost and regrow your immune system. Mm. And then finally, you know, just some more common sense recommendations we've hammered a bunch of times in previous podcasts, and that's uh, focusing on getting plenty of quality sleep, since lack of sleep knocks down your immune system resistance to viruses. Watching less news on TV, which will reduce your stress levels, which will in turn help your immune system. And of course, drinking plenty of pure water, which is, you know, ideally about half of your body weight in ounces per day. All right. So there's a lot of things people can do. Mm -hmm. Now, before we end, is there anything else you'd like to say on this topic? Yes. Um, you know, just a heads up on what sources are okay and what sources you should be leery of regarding this coronavirus outbreak. Um, Reputable sources are the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control at cdc.gov. I mean, there are others, but I would start with these two as far as being solid evidence-based current research and stats. 
Uh, you know, we can leave a link for the CDC website page dedicated to COVID-19. Um, it's really laid out very well, and I highly recommend the frequently uh, asked questions or facts section. And if you want to check in on how many cases have been confirmed worldwide as well as in the United States, then the situation updates section has all of this data. That's great. Yeah. We can also leave a link to an excellent informative video on this subject done by Dr. Eric Berg. I actually use some of the information from that in this podcast. Now, I, I mean, I would not trust anything on Wikipedia or social media since anyone can put anything on the, these sites, especially unproven conspiracy theories regarding the source of the virus and questionable recommended treatments and you know, preventive tips. There are also a lot of companies promoting things like coronavirus prevention kits, which are not recommended by the CDC or WHO, and can cost anywhere from $20 to $70. Many of them are you know, sold out at this time. But again, you don't have to go through the extra expense of purchasing a combination of surgery face masks and shoe covers and gowns and hair covers. If anything, you can get and utilize surgery face masks, especially if you're you know, going to be flying somewhere, which puts you at risk for exposure to the coronavirus or any other virus like the flu. Yeah. And there's plenty of places people can get those. Mm -hmm. All right. Good. Well, thanks. That's great information. I hope a lot of people listen to this one so that they're not scared out of their wits over something when that isn't necessary. Now, next week, we're going to do an episode that's a bit of a follow-up on last week's episode, which had to do with urinary tract infections. I mentioned that we didn't cover kidney stones because there was so much information to cover. So we're separating that into its own episode, but it's not just about kidney stones. It's about calcification conditions, conditions in the body that have to do with an imbalance of the calcium in the body and deposits of calcium in the body, including a bit about what our mother had, which is scleroderma, which has a lot to do with that. And she had kidney stones many, many years ago, back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking about both of those next week. And then after that, we're going to have a, another special guest that's going to be talking about vaping. So that's going to be an interesting one coming up in a couple weeks. So thanks again, Steve. You got it. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week, and if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week. Bye.